I hope you guys didn't get too used to having shorter sermons because I don't think we'll be having a uh, too short of one today, but we'll see. Today we're going to be in Old Testament territory. Our, t- our passage is going to be found in 1 Samuel chapter 14. And if you are not familiar with the story or never read it, I, I think you're in for a treat. Uh, this is a chapter I would love to see adapted into some kind of high-budget TV or movie or whatever. I think it's a very cool chapter. It's amazing, and it's an amazing one to learn from. See, as a kid, I used to see the Bible as it's just full of boring stories and just wise sayings until I actually read it for myself. Man, how wrong was I ever thinking the Bible was filled with boring stories? See, before we dive into this text, I want to point out a few things regarding the fact that we're going to be preaching and teaching from the Old Testament. See, a big name, or I can say a popular mainstream preacher, took a position and preached that as Christians, and especially preachers, we need to unhitch ourselves from the Old Testament. The the Old Testament must be unhitched from our faith. See, other preachers out there seem to follow that same kind of pattern. So according to him, I am doing y'all a disservice this morning preaching from the Old Testament. So he seems to connect this idea of not being under the law. That means we should only put our focus under the New Testament books. And now it is true that in Christ we are not under the Mosaic law. Romans 6.14 affirms this. It says, For sin shall not have dominion over you, for ye are not under the law, but under grace. What then? Shall we sin because we are not under the law, but under grace? God forbid. However, being under the law, and yes, it's a true statement, does not equal ignore the Old Testament. See, we can be freed from the law and yet still learn from many lives that we read about. Both things can be true at once. Let me just give you a few reasons why this way of thinking is just absolute baloney. Number one, it's the same God. Hebrews 13.8, Jesus Christ the same yesterday and today and forever. Some might say, well, wait a minute, Jesus is New Testament. No, Jesus is the same God all the way from Genesis when he spoke this world into existence and said, let there be light. See, since the beginning of everything, Jesus is He was the one who spoke this universe into existence, the same one who appeared in the garden to Adam and Eve, Eve, called Abraham to be the father of his chosen people, and the same one who appeared to Moses from a burning bush, I am. Second, it is all his word. See, it's not just scripture written after Christ came, which is given by inspiration of God. 2 Timothy 3.16 affirms all scripture is given by inspiration of God, and it's profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction, and righteousness. Not to mention, when Paul wrote this letter to Timothy, he, was, he certainly had the Old Testament in mind, along with the others, since the scriptures that he commends Timothy for knowing as a child. He's talking about the Old Testament scriptures there. And third, Jesus himself and the New Testament authors all reference and quote from the Old Testament. They certainly did not think we should be unhitching ourselves from the Old Testament. So if they didn't think this way, why should we? I don't care if it's a popular preacher that sells millions of books, has a big congregation. It just goes shows forth to know, to know that popularity does not equal biblical. And for the sake of our faith that grows, we cannot afford to unhitch ourselves 
from the Old Testament. We cannot afford to just ignore all these things. We can take examples from them just as Paul says that they were written for. Now, I think we can get into 1 Samuel 14 now that I ranted on a little bit. See, the setting is when Israel is being led by King Saul. See, they were at war with the Philistines, and it seemed to be a never-ending one. See, this king had sons and daughters. One of them is by the name Jonathan. See, in my opinion, he is one of the most interesting characters that we read about in the book of 1 Samuel, and one we could take a lot of insight and example from. See, we're going to read how God mightily used Jonathan's bold faith and how after Saul's failure and sin to eliminate everything of the Amalekites, we see just him continuously deteriorate. We're going to go ahead and read along, and we're going to uh, talk through the text as we go. So beginning in verses 1 through 3, we see Jonathan's plan. See, now it came to pass upon a day that Jonathan, the son of Saul, said unto the young men that bear his armor, Come, and let us go over to the Philistines' garrison, and that is on the other side. But he told not his father. And Saul tarried in the uttermost part of Gideon under pomegranate tree, which is in Migron. And the people that were with him were about 600 men. And Ahiah, the son of Iatub, Ichabod's brother, the son of Phinehas, the son of Eli, the Lord's priest, and Shiloh, wearing an ephod. And the people knew not that Jonathan was gone. So now it starts here that now it came to pass, indicating that this is a special event about to take place. See, Saul was leading the Israeli army to battle to the Philistine, and Saul already tried to be the hotshot and build an altar and do sacrifices without Samuel the priest present, when he was specifically commanded to wait. Saul, Jonathan, and his army stayed in Gibeah while Philistines were encamped in Michmash. The Israel army already had the odds completely stacked against them because they had no blacksmith of their own and they had to take their weapons to Philistines to get them sharpened who would continuously overcharge them for it. So as battle is approaching, no one but Saul and Jonathan have an efficient weapon. This is what leads into chapter 14. It's going to focus on two characters at the beginning. Jonathan and an unnamed character, Jonathan's armor bearer. You would think this would be a petty position based off of the duties, having to carry weapons for someone else, and even the name, but every ranking officer had an assistant with them that would carry additional weapons and finish off wounded enemies for their master. They would serve them. They were called armor bearers. David himself would eventually become Saul's armor bearer for a time. It was a very high, honorable position because the high-ranking officer is entrusting his life in their hands. Being an armor bearer is a very big deal. It's not like the modern-day football equipment manager or anything like that. It says Jonathan told not his father what he was about to do. So you can speculate on why, but I think this was deliberate. See, while, while King Saul sits under a pomegranate tree... The son of the king is the one who is going to take action in faith. And the people also did not know Jonathan was gone, which I think indicates that he's not doing this for some kind of recognition or his own glory. He sees a need and, unlike his father, does not want any glory in it. He tells his armor bearer the plan that they go towards the Philistines' garrison, which the garrison is talking about a Philistine military base that's set. Not the ideal place for just a few men to go walk into. So let's see what, the, what, what they do. Verses 4. 
And between the passages by which Jonathan sought to go over unto the Philistines' garrison, there was a sharp rock on the one side and a sharp rock on the other side. And the name of one was Boses, and the name of other, Sine. The forefront of the one who was situated northward over against Michmash, and the other southward against over against Gibeah. And Jonathan said to the young man that bare his armor, Come, let us go over unto the garrison of these uncircumcised. It may be that the Lord will work for us. For there is no restraint to the Lord to save by many or by few. And his armor bearer said unto him, Do all that is in thine heart, turn thee, behold, I am with thee according to thy heart. Then said Jonathan, Behold, we will pass over unto these men, and we will discover ourselves unto them. If they say unto us, Tarry until we come to see you, then we will stand over in our place, and we will not go up unto them. But if they say thus, Come up, after, come up unto us, then we will go up, for the Lord had delivered them into our hand, and this shall be a sign unto us. See, I want to read Jonathan's profound statement again. He says, It may be that the Lord will work for us, for there is no restraint to the Lord to save by many or by few. Say amen to that. See, other men like Gideon from the book of Judges, they had received direct word from God when the odds were absolutely stacked against them. They had no weapons, they were outnumbered, but Jonathan is acting on pure faith, no verbal confirmation. But he had the attitude that if God had done all these mighty things through these men, what could he do through me? See, Jonathan's armor bearer trusts him. He follows him into what, on the outside perspective, would be absolutely a foolish move. No wonder he did not tell his father. Why would just a few men go and attack at a military base? And he plans to reveal themselves to the Philistines. And if they come to them, he says, they'll stay put. And if the Philistines tell them to come over, then he would take that as a sign from the Lord. We see what happens next. The battle begins. Verse 11. And both of them discovered themselves unto the Philistines. And the Philistines said, Behold, the Hebrews come forth out of the holes which they had hid themselves. And the men of the garrison answered Jonathan his armor bearer and said, Come up to us and we will show you a thing. If that isn't the biblical language of bring it on, I don't know what else is. And the men of the garrison answered Jonathan his armor bearer, Come and we will show you a thing. And Jonathan said unto his armor bearer, Come up after me, for the Lord hath delivered them into the hand of Israel. And Jonathan climbed up upon his hands, upon his feet, and the armor bearer after him, and they fell before Jonathan. And his armor bearer slew after him. Remember I talked to mention they would finish off the wounded, men, the wounded men. And that first slaughter, which Jonathan and his armor bearer made, was about 20 men. Within it, as were in half an acre of land, which is a yoke of oxen might plow. So you got two guys taking on 20 Philistine soldiers. See, the Philistines spot them, and they start with mockery. They've come out of the holes that they've hid themselves in. And this seems to be a direct reference of what we could see in the previous chapter. Look at 1 Samuel 13. It says, When the men of Israel saw that they were in a strait, when they saw that the, their situation was hopeless, for the people were distressed, then the people did hide themselves in caves and in thickets and in rocks and in high places and in pits. To say that there's just some caves in Israel or a few that would be an absolute understatement. So there, do you know there are over 1,200 registered caves in Israel? See, I always wondered how David was able to escape Saul and hide all of those men 
until I actually went there myself. I want to show you a picture. Here's a picture that I took while we were on that bus. It might be a little pixelated. That's the best I could get while we were moving. See, caves were not an uncommon thing in Israel at all. As you can look into the mountains, the hills, you see cave spots just everywhere. This is how the men would be able to hide themselves against soldiers and how David was able to hide himself. Soldiers would hide themselves at times for strategy or they were hiding in fear for their life. So in continuation, the Philistines challenged Jonathan to come down and we will show you a thing. And Jonathan's our bear then advanced, acknowledging the Lord had delivered them into the hands of Israel. Notice Jonathan's using it in group language. He's not making this all about himself. He didn't just stand there and pray to the Lord, just send down fire and just vanquish our enemies. He acted in faith and he advanced. See, there are times where we need to just say amen and start taking action. Acting in faith isn't praying than just waiting around for God to do something. We must indeed be people of prayer, but we also need to get our own hands and feet in. Why would and should we want God to do the things that we ourselves are able to do? I'm reminded of what James illustrated with the faith without works instead. He says this in James 2.15. If a brother or sister be naked and destitute of daily food, and one of you say unto them, Depart in peace. Be ye warm and filled, notwithstanding ye give them not those things which are needful to the body. What doeth it profit? So illustration here, someone comes to you and says, I need food, I need, I need clothes, I need some help. Be well, the Lord be with you. Someone comes to you with a need, oh, I'll pray for you. When you have the ability to help them then and there. We need to be men of prayer and women of prayer, but we also need to be taking action. Why wait to do the things when we why wait for God to do the things that we ourselves are able to do? That's how our faith grows. See, Jonathan and his armor bearer take out 20 men all on their own. This indicates a skill. He is a man of faith that trains, but this alone isn't what's going to win this war. He had the right perspective, and he didn't see this as Jonathan's battle or his great act of faith. He saw this as God's battle. It belongs to the Lord. And this is what comes next. Verse 15. And there was trembling in the hosts in the field and among all the people. The garrison and the spoilers, they also trembled and the earth quaked. So it was very great trembling. And the watchmen of Saul and Gibeah of Benjamin looked and behold, the multitude melted away and they went on beating down one another. Then said Saul unto the people that were with him, number now and see who is gone from us. And when they had numbered, behold, Jonathan and his armor bearer were not there. And Saul said unto Ahiah, Bring hither the ark of God. For the ark of God was at that time with the children of Israel, as if the ark's going to really do any good at this moment. And it came to pass while Saul talked unto the priest that the noise that is in the host of the Philistines went on and increased. And Saul said unto the priest, Withdraw thine hand. See, God sends an earthquake, and the Philistines in panic begin to attack each other. It didn't matter if the Philistines greatly outnumbered the Israelites and they had far better weapons. God was more than able to set the Philistines against each other. See, if the Israelites had no swords, God would use the swords of the Philistines to strike the Philistines. I find the irony there. Saul then learns of the battle and he calls for an unnecessary numbering of the men. Could be, whoa, who is responsible for this? It's not me doing this. 
See, he discovers Jonathan and his armor bearer were missing and then calls for the Ark of the Covenant to be brought in. See, Saul is trying to probably look real spiritual here, but there was nothing to seek God about in this very moment. There was a time to set aside and pray, but this is the time to get your sword and fight. See, Saul didn't know what that time was. See, eventually the noise got so loud that it left Saul no choice but to bring his men into the fight. See, Saul was a very religious man. Very religious man, but he was no man after God's own heart. Verses 20 through 22, And Saul and all the people that were with him assembled themselves, and they came to the battle. And behold, every man's sword was against his fellow, and there was a great discomfiture or confusion. Moreover, the Hebrew that were with the Philistines before that time, which went up with them into the camp from country roundabout, even they also turned to be with the Israelites that were with Saul and Jonathan. Likewise, all the men of Israel which had hid themselves in Mount Ephraim, in which they heard that the Philistines fled, which even also they heard after them in the battle. So more of Israel joins this battle. The Israel who were with the Philistines could be those who were slaves and those who had hid themselves. The Philistines were attacking one another. It looks like the battle is absolutely settled and done. The Philistines fled. Verse 23, a very cool passage. So the Lord saved Israel that day, and the battle passed over into Bethaven. So key to understanding this, the Lord saved Israel that day. They were in a hopeless situation, outnumbered, discouraged, and without proper equipment and weapons. Jonathan, indeed, he takes a bold step of faith, and he does what he can do. But God did what only God can do. Amen. God is not so interested in doing what we can do. God is interested in doing the things what God can only do. See, without his intervention, Israel would have been surely defeated that day. And God used Jonathan mightily, but it wasn't Jonathan's victory. It was the Lord's victory. And I'm pretty sure Jonathan was perfectly okay with that. And this ought to be how it's done in our churches today. God is the one who gets the credit. God is the one who gets the glory. And you would think this story should just end here. Saul should be rejoicing over this great victory that the Lord had brought and be proud of his son. But let's let's keep on reading. Verse 24 through 26. And the men of Israel were distressed that day, for Saul had adjourned the people, saying, Cursed be the man that eateth any food until evening, that I may be avenged on mine enemies. So none of the people tasted any food. All they of the land came to the wood, and there was honey upon the ground. And when the people were come into the wood, behold, the honey dropped, but no man put his hand to his mouth, for the people feared the oath. See, Saul then, in his self-righteous thinking, calls for a fast. After battle, after a great war, you would think the people will be absolute exhausted and they need to restore their energy he's trying to play both the role of king and priest and think of it as a holy act see fasting is good fasting is a good time there's a time for it but this was not the time for it because men feared the oath they were distressed they saw what god had actually put right in front of them god is the one who provided that honey for them and they missed out because of what another man decided to put in action. After these battles, they are bound to be famished. Verses 27 through 30. 
But Jonathan heard not when his father charged the people with the oath. Wherefore, he put forth the end of the rod that was in his hands and dipped it in the honeycomb and put his hand to his mouth and his eyes were enlightened. Then answered one of the people and said, Thy father straightly charged the people with an oath, saying, Cursed be the man that eateth any food this day. And the people were faint. An obvious, logical conclusion, what happens. And then said Jonathan, My father had troubled the land. See, I pray you, how mine eyes have been enlightened, because I tasted little of this honey. How much more, if haply the people had eaten freely today of the spoil of their enemies, which they had found, for there had not been now a much greater slaughter among the Philistines. See, Jonathan, who did not hear of this oath, he eats of the honey and restored his energy. I like to think even if Jonathan heard of it, he still would have eaten anyways. He needed the energy, and there it was provided by God. The men inform him of the curse, and he even sees the foolishness what had been set by his father. See, in a way, yes, he undercuts his father's authority as king, but he was right. He even knew if the people had eaten that day and restored their strength, restored their energy, victory of the Philistines would have been even greater. Verse 31, And they smote the Philistines that day from Michmash to Ajalon, and the people were very faint. They still have not eaten. And the people fled upon, flew upon the spoil and took sheep and oxen and calves and slew them on the ground, and the people did eat them with the blood. Then they sold Saul, saying, Behold, the people sinned against the Lord, and that they did eat with the blood. And he said, Ye have transgressed and roll a great stone unto me this day. And Saul said, Disperse yourselves among the people and say unto them, Bring me here every man his ox, every man his sheep, and slay them here, and eat. And sin not against the Lord in eating with the blood. And the people brought every man his ox with him that night and slew them there. After yet more battle, the famished soldiers hastily ate what they could get their hands on. See, God had specifically commanded Israel that they should always properly drain the blood from an animal as, if they, as to prepare it for eating. Because of Saul's foolish command, the people were so hungry that they broke this command and were willfully sinning. See, they indeed were guilty, but Saul was responsible. In effort to obey Saul, it led them to sin. This is the result always of legalism. See, some people think legalistic rules out there will keep people from sin, but in reality, legalistic rules leads people into sin. Saul then steps in like that good religious man he is. Saul builds an altar, verse 35, and Saul built an altar unto the Lord. The same was the first altar he built unto the Lord. And Saul said, let us go down after the Philistines by night and spoil them into the morning light, and let us not leave a man of them. They said, do whatsoever seemeth good unto thee. Then said the priest, let us draw near hither unto God. And Saul asked counsel of God, shall I go down after the Philistines? Will thou deliver them into the hand of Israel? But he, God, answered him not that day. And Saul said, draw ye near hither all the chiefs of the people and know and see wherein this sin hath been this day. Whose fault is it that all the people have done this today? For as the Lord liveth, which saveth Israel, though it be in Jonathan my son, he shall surely die. But there was not a man among all the people that answered him. Then, he said, then said he unto all Israel, Be on one side, and I and Jonathan my son will be on the other side. And there's no way I'm responsible for this one, or my son's responsible for this one. So he divides the people, Jonathan and Saul to this one, and all the rest on this side. 
And the people said unto him, unto Saul, do what seemeth good unto thee. To me, I read this, I think the people are just put up and just fed up with Saul at this point. Just do whatever you want at this point. Therefore Saul said unto the Lord of God of Israel, give a perfect lot. And Saul and Jonathan were taken, but the people escaped. So it lands on their side. So Saul tries to seek counsel of the Lord, but God did not hear him that day. Not that God is unable to, but God is rejecting to give Saul an answer. And he then ignites this plan to figure out who caused this sin today. And whoever did it, he shall surely die, even if it's his own son, Jonathan. See, they cast lots to find who it falls on, Jonathan's side and Saul's side, or the people's. See, this word here for perfect lots, very interesting, is believed to relate with the Hebrew, Urim, the Hebrew, the Urim and the Thummim. See, the, these meanings are light and perfection. It was a breastplate worn by the priests when they would inquire from the Lord. The people would reach in, grab a stone, and they would indicate a yes or a no. So that's how this lot is believed to be casted. And it eventually fell on Jonathan and Saul. Verse 42, And Saul said, Cast lots now between me and Jonathan, my son. And Jonathan was taken. Then Saul said to Jonathan, Tell me what thou hast done. And Jonathan told him and said, I did but taste a little honey with the rod, with the end of the rod that was in mine hand, and lo, I must die. And Saul answered, God so do, and more also, for thou shalt surely die, Jonathan. And Saul, is, he, he's, ready, he's ready to prove he was right. And the people said unto Saul, Shall Jonathan die who hath wrought this great salvation in Israel? God forbid. As the Lord liveth, there shall not be one hair of his head fall to the ground, for he hath wrought with God this day. So the people rescued Jonathan, that he died not. Then Saul went up from following the Philistines, and the Philistines went to their own place. Then, so the lot falls on Jonathan, and Jonathan then explains all he did was take honey and questions he must die. It's like, I must die? This is like a tone. It's like, are you serious? Saul is in his pride, is still willing to kill his own son instead of admitting to his pride and admitting to his wrongdoing this dumb oath that should have never existed. And by God's favor, God's protection, the people refused to allow it. They were willing to go against the king to save the son. And Saul gives up pursuing the Philistines and the Philistines went their own way. So you would think this should have been a happy ending with Jonathan's victory he brought, to the, brought in, but a self-righteous religious man had a soil at all. So what have we learned today? You know, we've been going through 1 Samuel in the youth Sunday school, and they are able to conclude Saul's gone cuckoo. That's, that's a direct quote, Saul's gone cuckoo. But I think there's more that we can still take out of it on that. From the life of Jonathan... We can see who trusts God despite the odds stacked against him. His faith inspired others to act, and God brought great victory that day. And as for Saul, he is an example of how all the religious front isn't going to cut it. See, religion is as useless for a heart that is far from God. See, Saul, as king, he started out well. He started out a great king, but his pride continued to leave to his downfall. See, I like to think when Solomon wrote the proverb that pride comes before the fall and a haughty spirit before destruction, that he definitely had Saul in his mind as the inspiration to that. 
and he had all the talks of a religious man. Many in this world that seek out, they want to be more religious. I even had a conversation with a coworker that this year he wants to be more religious. I'll tell you this morning that religion is not going to cut it. Only Jesus does. Some of the people that hated Jesus the most were very religious people. He came because religion can't save anyone. See, his death on the cross, his victory over death, that secured that for us. Don't ever put your trust in religion. Put your trust in Jesus because he is so much more than just a religious figure, as they call him. Only by him is how you can know God and know where you will spend eternity if you would trust him to save you. I'm not saying religion is bad in general because as Christians, we should be more religious in a sense. Pure religion is taking care of the widows. We're doing religious things. But if we're depending upon that to save us, our hearts are far from God. Jesus came to save because religion cannot save. People, I've heard this quote, religion says do this, Jesus says done, it is finished. Only by trusting in Jesus. Not religion, not any of your own efforts. Only God can do this. God can save the unsavable because no one will go make it by religion. So what do you want to be? You want to be more religious or you want to be someone that looks more like Jesus? Let's pray. Father, we thank you for such a magnificent story, Lord, that we get to read about and such a cool imagination that we can have with what took place, Lord. But in reality, we should set back to one thing, Lord, and that's about you. It was not Jonathan's great faith that's illustrated and highlighted, Lord. It's about you bringing victory and your faithfulness over your people. And this story, Lord, even though it was written so long ago and happened so long ago, is still just as relevant today and how pride can lead to our complete fall but how faith like Jonathan's, Lord, can do such mighty and wonderful things. So, Father, thank you for allowing us to be here and to be able to use people like us for your glory and for your honor. We love you and thank you for, so, for a cross, Lord, and that we don't have to be dependent upon religion or do all these things in order for us to, meet, to know you, that we can know you because of what your son did on our behalf. We love you, Lord, and just may we apply these things to our hearts and keep our, fi- and our main focus to you alone. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. 20 years ago, plus, when the towers came down in New York City, one of the, uh, I can't remember who it was, but one of our politicians who apparently knew something that most of them didn't know, he pointed out that religion demands that Men give their sons to God. He's talking specifically about Islam. And that's exactly what it, de- what it demands. The, uh, he pointed out that Christianity is God giving his son for us instead of demanding us giving our sons for him. Pretty big difference. That's kind of exactly what you saw in this story with Saul and Jonathan. Take his son's life because of being religious, because of a a disobedience. Thank the Lord for the people of Israel who knew better that day.
we have been here as a church preaching the gospel for 70 years coming up this next month. 70 years. We haven't got it all planned out with the details yet, but we're going to have a celebration. 70 years is a long time. Most churches don't last 70 years. But this one has, and she's still going strong. Thanks to our, not our religion, but our Savior. Thanks to Him. He is mighty to save, isn't He? It's, it would be the greatest sadness I can think of that any one of you would still be depending on your religion after learning all there is that we've been able to teach over these last years about who Jesus is and what he's done and why, that you would still be hanging on to your religion. I just just can't think of anything more sad than that. You need to let go of your religion. Put your trust in Jesus. Jesus is not a religion. He is the Savior of the world. He does what you and no religion can ever do. He's mighty to save.